What's going on everybody? Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. And boy, do we have a good show planned for you today. It's a big episode because Jose Young's SI fan-sided writer covering MMA and boxing will talk about the fight of the year, fight of maybe a generation between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin, Triple G. We're going to talk about that, John Jones' suspension, and much, much more. But up first, it's Sean Sullivan Sully back on the show, NFL Network producer for the Move the Sticks podcast with Daniel Jeremiah. We're going to talk about college football, a interesting week two. We recap all the big games and talk about some big ones in week three, USC Texas, Clemson Louisville, and of course, Sully's Tennessee Volunteers versus the Florida Gators, all that and more. It's Friday, Money Mitch Effect. Feel good on this Friday? We're about to feel better. Let's start the show. Okay, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect Hotline to talk college football, the Money Mitch Effect Hotline presented this week by the Georgia Bulldogs and South Carolina Gamecocks. That's Sean Sullivan. <laughs> Sully on the yeah, show. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It was a good weekend for some, a bad weekend for others, and a great weekend for us. But Sully, thanks for joining the program. Yeah, that's an absolute pleasure. I had to jump on after uh, the glorious weekend hit on that parlay we had last weekend with the Cox uh, I mean, as you mentioned. Good teams win, great teams cover, extraordinary teams hit the money line, so uh, I'll leave it at there. But it was uh, a fun weekend of college Davin football. Davin Bellamy coming in the clutch. <laughs> coming in the, in the, in the stack. I do want to start there, Sully, because there's a lot of ways to look at what happened last week. It was a, you know, a big weekend, mm-hmm. the second official week of the season, and the best game of the weekend, I don't even know that there's an argument to say otherwise, was that Georgia-Notre Dame game. It had back-and-forth football. It was down to the wire. Georgia wins 20-19. to But what jumped out at both of us, and you warned me on what was going to happen, was that crowd at Notre Dame was so pro-Georgia. I think it's safe to say I, I've never seen a crowd so pro a rival team in that stadium. No. And you saw you knew it was coming leading up to the kickoff because the days before you saw it at Wrigley and Coach Dooley was throwing up the first pitch at Wrigley and, and you hear UGA chants and then Hamilton's in Chicago and, it, and their UGA fan, UGA chant before Hamilton and you, you knew that it was going to be around 25-30k but when you actually saw it and, you, and they panned the crowd and it is just all red in Notre Dame Stadium that was pretty pretty cool to see and it's not shocking considering that Georgia as it crossed the Mason Dixon line, mm-hmm. Tertia Walker was playing for him. So they they, they they wanted to get out of the, get out of town, and, and definitely uh, when you get a chance as a big college football fan, which obviously a lot of dogs are, you got to go to Notre Dame when you get the chance to. So, but yeah, to, to start with the game, that that was a, a heck of a battle back and forth. I don't know. I, I've, I've heard a lot of people calling it a statement win for Georgia. I, I would hold off on that just quite mm-hmm. yet, just because we don't know what Notre Dame is. They're, they're coming off four and eight season and if they're another four and eight team and then that that's not exactly a statement win on the road or not yeah now i will say this though i think with that game that crowd it's cliche to say but it definitely helped georgia win that game a one-point game it could have oh, been yeah. either way notre dame has a young offense a young quarterback that haven't been in those pressure moments to be at home and to have fans chanting against you i think i mean i don't care what anybody says that had to make a difference Oh, they had to intimidate the Notre Dame, the Notre Dame offense. You know, it was getting a, on the field and damn near being on the road. Yeah, to, <laughs> down down by one with the ball with with you know barely any time left. 
You know, like, what, what the heck is up with that? <laughs> I know. It was a game Georgia, I don't know that they needed to have, but it was one that they would definitely feel like was important given that the SEC schedule is going to come up. There's a lot of tough games, as you know. Uh, we don't know. You said we don't know what Notre Dame is this year, and that's true. But I think we do know Brian Kelly's kind of a jerk. <laughs> yes, mean, yes. It's that post game presser. Come on, man. Not good. And and I heard you know your one of your one of your favorites Tennessee alum Paul Feinbaum say he thinks he might be angling to get out, and that might be true because I I, I still think this is a make or break year for him, Brian Kelly, and I think if it goes south, which it can, because their schedule is not easy every year. I think this could be, you know, it could snowball. And I do think that was a fair question, and he handled it unbelievably poor. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that whole coaching tree could get chopped in half this year between him and Butch Jones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say anything, but since you brought it up, uh, you might be right yeah. there. But there were some other teams, some other games that were interesting this past week. I do have to spend some time on this. Sully, it was a statement win, if ever there was one, for the Oklahoma Sooners going into Columbus, into the horseshoe, beating the Buckeyes. And on the Oklahoma front, now moving up to number two in the country, I don't think you could ask for a cleaner game from that team, from that offense, specifically Baker Mayfield. And what I mean by that is he's a big play guy, a lot of risk, a lot of reward. But he played flawless and efficient. And maybe, dare I say, sacrifice some of the big plays for some of the longer, more efficient drives? Yeah, I, I think he's. you still see the sandlot moments where he's famously drawn up plays in, in the sand almost and juking out entire defenses on his way to the end zone. But it's definitely showed some maturity to be able to go on the road and go to a tough, tough environment and lead his team uh, with, with uh, a huge win and in a revenge statement game against, I, I don't care how you draw it up, it's still one of the more talented teams in the country. And Ohio State on the road. That's a, that's a huge win for those guys. Uh, and now it's up, uh, looking at their schedule, sure, there, there are some tough teams in the Big 12, but it's up to Oklahoma State to, to really knock them off at the end of the year. Right, but in those games, we know that it's the end of the year, and that's going to be a big game regardless. But that conference has landmines all over it. So I would say oh, for both of those teams, put that on the back burner. Don't, don't, even, don't even go there. Don't even think about that game yet. We don't either. want to go down that rabbit hole yet? No, okay. no, no, no. I think there is so <laughs> yeah. much time. And, yeah, it could it's very well be two world. undefeated yeah. Big 12 teams. But if you told me that they were going to be each with one loss, I'd believe that too. So we're a long ways mm-hmm. away from, uh, from that. But yeah, it, I, mean, I project a little too early, but, but <laughs> in my yeah. opinion. That's going to be a good game. That's going to have some great quarterback play in it when it happens. But – for the Sooners, they win, they get to number two. And on the other side, the Buckeyes lose a big game at home, a game that they were thoroughly outplayed. There's no bones about it. They were, and everyone's going to point to the offense, that quarterback position. Before we get to JT Barrett specifically, I think the bigger picture is the offense as a whole. They are just not Mm -hmm. getting it done. Yes, the quarterback play can improve, but the line's still not blocking. The receivers aren't getting separation that's the first thing I would bring up is don't pin this on one guy. They got thoroughly outplayed across the board, specifically on offense. Absolutely, and, and we've spoken about it before on your show. Is one of the bigger question marks for not only Ohio State, but just nationally, is everybody points to that offensive line for Ohio State after games like Michigan where it, without without some incredible plays down the stretch for Ohio State, like they're going to lose that game at home to Michigan last year. And it's the same way. It's the same old song and dance so far this year for, for the Buckeyes. And it's definitely not all on J.C. Barrett. I think it is a 
fortunate, you know, being a being a quarterback for a top five team, uh, you're going to get a lot put on you. But you're right, like it, it, it's not just about him. Those wide receivers are untested, and they, they were not getting separation. And I think that that's a lot of credit due to Oklahoma being able to go on the road, and that coaching staff had a great game plan. And and without you take up Bob Stoops, that's still that same coaching staff. And uh, they, they got it done on the road in a big, big way. They did, and, and that's a good point. There's a lot of similarities to the Oklahoma victory Michigan's loss last year. Michigan just couldn't cash in. You know, they turned the ball over too mm-hmm. much. Oklahoma didn't do that, and you saw it out the results on the field. The JT Barrett factor, I don't. I, I think it's too early to call for his head for his job, especially given you know his prior right. accomplishments. But the leash is and you have, shorter. And you have a couple cupcakes to iron things out. Yeah, here. so that, that's the other good point. And I think the leash is getting shorter. You have Drew Haskins on the bench, who's got a lot of hype behind him and deservedly so. But I don't think Meyer's quite there yet. Now he could be a couple more bad games, and he could very well be there. A very bad half against a bad team, and he could be there. But given and, how he's handled things in the past and, and his attitude right now, I just don't think he's quite there yet. And I've heard uh, just in, from a national perspective on, on just the various shows, College Football Live or whatever, and, and people that are inside the program believe that in J.T. Barrett's guy, they've, they've been through a lot, and it is really hard to earn Urban Meyer's trust if Barrett has it. So it's, I think it's going to take another game like that against the team that they, they should lose to for him to pull up. They need to be down against uh, uh, you know a, a lesser opponent again for him to yank him. It's, it's, and I don't see that happening. And, and, and if you bit the positive on the flip side for the Buckeyes, if you could lose one game on the schedule and you could pick and pick what game you want to lose, it's in a non-conference game against a top five team. Even though it's at home, that's not a great look. But it's early in the season. Yeah. You have plenty of time and plenty of big games in front of you to, to win and, and, and win yourself back into the playoff picture. Right, I agree. I mean, they the year they won the title, they lost to Virginia Tech, a much worse non-conference loss, uh, and were able exactly. to come back. So we'll see. I mean, the the deck's stacked against them now. There's no more margin for error, but it is one of those things. Well, Sully, Sean Sullivan, Money Mitch effect. Last game I want to talk about last week before we look ahead to the Week 3 action, and that was as impressive of a win on par with Oklahoma. USC beat Stanford, and that was a game that we thought – had a lot of trap potential. Stanford's a tough team. They always have USC. They have their number. But Sully, the Trojans look good. You know, whatever they were, whatever issues they had against Western Michigan, they seemed to iron them out against Stanford. Offensively, they were efficient. Darnold was throwing some bombs. And, and and I look at USC, and I look at this win in this program, and we all are in agreement that Bama is Bama, and their best is better than everybody else's best. But is it a fair argument to say that USC might have the second highest ceiling in the country. Yeah, because I, I don't think we've we've even seen their their best shot yet, which is which is kind of crazy. Uh, but that was pretty close to it on Saturday against Stanford. You're right. The Cardinal have had their number, and especially in the past, just being physical at the point of attack. And, and USC just just kind of just didn't care. They were clicking on all cylinders on offense. Sam Darnold with four touchdowns had an incredible game. And I think a, a lot of people were buying a little bit too much into that that Western Michigan game. SC noon game or uh, earlier afternoon game against Western Michigan. Looking ahead a little bit to that Stanford game where they have had their number. Uh, it, it's an easy easy trap game, and they 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 play down to their opponent. And I think this was the SC that that everybody was looking to this season to, to rise up and make a push for the playoffs and, and push with uh, Washington for the Pac-12 title and. They're, they're right there uh, in the title hunt. They are. 
Uh, I think if their defense can change the field, can get them some turnovers, if they can aid their offense at all, that's where we're going to see them because we know that USC can move the ball quick. And that defense is banged up yeah. coming out off, off that Stanford win. We'll preview here in a little bit. That Texas team isn't isn't as good as we thought it was, but they can't overlook any anybody with injuries on defense. Darnold, obviously, is going to make up for a lot of that. They're going to put up a lot of points. But, yeah, I think they have a couple of linebackers out and, and the defense to tackle out. So uh, they need to be careful this weekend. They do. Well, Sully, before we get to the games and some previews of this week, there's one other thing to talk about, and that is, unfortunately, due to you know the hurricanes, Irma, especially, a lot of games are going to be you know moved around. We worried about Florida, Tennessee. There's not going to be Miami, Florida State, uh, a couple other games as well. But as someone that's seen this before, what do you think this impact is going to be? Obviously, much you know lesser on the priority list, obviously, than what's going on. Mm-hmm. But not having these games now, looking at maybe replaying some, some might not get replayed. How's this going to affect the college football season going forward? Oh, I, I think uh, for some teams, I think it's going to be a big, big shakeup because you look at a team like Florida State that just lost DeAndre Francois in week one, tough, hard-fought game against Bama, and then they have two weeks off trying to break in a new quarterback, and one was against the Cupcake, and then the other one's against your big rival, Miami, and that, that's a big blow for those guys. We had Coach Fisher on, and I think – you can tell, like it, it's it's their their mind obviously is still on the hurricane, but and trying to move on from that. But it, it, it's it's tough as a football team to, to overcome just any of those situations. Yeah, uh, and they, they have a lot of leadership on that team. I'm not too worried about Florida State. I think they have enough talent with uh, the the likes of Derwin James and, and and those studs on that defense side of the ball. They're going to be okay. But on the flip side, if Gainesville, that's a big worry with with the offense. Sure, it was Michigan in their defense. There's still a lot of question marks. They have zero identity, and they needed that Northern Colorado game to iron a lot of that out. Mm-hmm. And now you're going up against a Tennessee team that sure is lacking a little identity, but it's a rivalry game, and and Tennessee just knocked off Florida for the first time in 11 years, and they're looking to make it two straight uh, against an offense that has zero identity. That hurricane, um, and obviously thoughts of the prayers of everybody in Florida, I think is going to have a pretty large impact on two of the bigger teams in, in that state. Yeah, and you look at, you know, like moving games around, like the coaching staff, mm-hmm. the players are used to their, their schedule, their routine. You know, the coaches especially have geared their team, you know, for a certain schedule. That shifts around. That can make it a little unpredictable. I think, yeah, I think especially you lose a cupcake game as well like Florida State did. I mean, you know, you can iron some kinks out there. They're not going to have that opportunity. I, I'm interested to see how a lot of these teams respond their first game back after those unofficial bye weeks. Uh, we'll have to see. It can go. It can go one or two ways, really. Yeah, like, oh, you're absolutely right. Tennessee played LSU after Katrina in their first home, true home game in in Death Valley, and they came out firing on all cylinders. But I, that game ended up going in overtime, and you can just see those guys were just so exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. As the game wore on, and Tennessee ended up coming back down by 21 and winning that game in overtime. And I think a lot of the, the same things are going to happen to Florida where they're going to come out firing and Tennessee better be ready for it because they're going to be at home. They're going to be in front of a very, very passionate crowd. But when one for the Gipper moment, it's just, it's just about weathering the storm for sure. It is. It certainly is. And uh, we'll, we'll monitor how these teams do. It's a big moment in a lot of college football seasons. Uh, but, again, bigger things as well. Praying for everybody affected by the Hurricanes. All right, Sully, money effect. Let's look at some of these games. It 
doesn't necessarily have the magnitude of big games that we saw last week, especially in prime time, but there's some good games on the agenda. I want to get to a few Always. I want to get to a few of them quickly and then we can breeze through it to the main events. But an underrated game this week. I know you're an SEC guy, and I have to bring this up because I think this could be a, an interesting game. But Mississippi State, LSU. LSU going to Mississippi State, seven-and-a-half-point favorites. We all talk Here's about – Here's a cowbell, baby. I, Coach Mullins is great. So I, I'm not – I think this is a very tasty game. I like LSU to win, but I think this is going to be close at night at home oh, at Mississippi State. Completely agree with you. Night game, Mississippi State, these guys – know how to win big games uh, as of late under Dan Mullen, and they could easily rise up and do it again. They're, they're outmatched uh, just about at every position except for quarterback, and Nick Fitzgerald is having that one big in a really big way against the defense. That is just downright nasty. R and Key's first game back this season. I think Coach O came out and said that he's going to end up starting, but doesn't necessarily know how much he's going to play, mm-hmm. considering it's his first game in a, in a big way, in a big spot in the in SEC West play. But I, I think they're going to try to turn that guy loose, and and Nick Fitzgerald better get the ball out quick because that defense. You look at at, at a BYU that had negative five rushing yards, and they they didn't even cross the fifty. Uh, that that defense is exactly what it was advertised going into the season, and I, I do think uh, it's going to be a close game going in the fourth quarter. But it's going to take a hurt doing an effort by Fitzgerald for uh, the Bulldogs to pull it off. You must have to get ahead early on LSU, right? Like. If you can find a way to get, you know, a double-digit lead yeah, you know, early and, and make LSU have to throw and, and kind of abandon that make grind. Make Danny Handling beat you. Yeah. I, yep. I don't know. That's, that's the tough, way to beat him. That's a tough ask, though. Um, I did want to get your initial thoughts, though, on another game that's got sneaky potential to be a good one. The uh, the other team from Tennessee, Vanderbilt, hosting K-State. This line's three and a half for K-State on the road, but Vanderbilt, you know, unfortunately, you know, that they play some big games at night at home. They do, uh, and they haven't beaten a non-conference top 25 opponent in something like 60 years at home. And <laughs> they're due. That, they're due. They're due. I think they're like 0-17, 0-18. It's kind of, kind of a weird, crazy stat. But, yeah, I, I think Vanderbilt, the way they've kind of come out and that offense is clicking. Kyle Shermer is one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC, and, and people might laugh at that, but there are a lot of good quality quarterbacks. The quarterback play has stepped up this season. He's a fine quarterback that got it done against Tennessee last year, that got it done against Georgia last year on the road. And and K-State's coming in. And, you know, the Wizard is going to be walking up and down the sidelines, Gandalf and uh, the, the Wizard of Manhattan. That he's going to have the a White ready. Walker. The, the White Walker. The White Walker is going to have him ready to, to, to go. And, and that's that's one of those teams that no matter what what's happening, as long as the White Walker's on the sidelines, they're going to be okay. But, that that I think that's going to be the game of the weekend. Two teams that are that are a little little bit of flying under the radar, Vanderbilt especially. But their first couple games, they they they've looked like they're clicking on all cylinders on both sides of the ball. Middle Tennessee State, not exactly the the biggest opponent, but week one that they went in there and shut out that offense. That's a pretty prolific offense. That's hard to do, and they did it. So that I, I think uh, Vanderbilt could pull up the upset at home. They could, you know, and if I was, you know, Vanderbilt or any team playing K-State in a night game, I'd just try to push the start time back, you know, make it make it kind right. of late for Coach Snyder because, I don't know, you know, it might be maybe. Yeah, he, 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 he's going to definitely take a nap for that one. <laughs> he needs it. He needs it. All right, let's spend some time on, on the game we kind of touched on earlier, Sully South, USC, excuse me, taking on Texas. 
at the Coliseum. 15 and a half point favorites over the Longhorns. Ooh. And my initial thought is I think Texas is going to be able to move the ball on USC. And I think they can put up some points. But I also think oh, Arnold I... is just going to gash this defense. I like high scoring. I, I really like the over. It's at 67 and a half. I think Texas is going to be in the 20s. But I think Arnold is going to have a field day. I, I like them to win this game pretty big. I think you put the nail on the head. Shane Michelle is going to be able to move the ball a little bit with the knocked-up Trojan defense coming off of a very physical game against Stanford. But on the flip side of the ball, it's, it's all about Sam Darnold going up against the secondary that absolutely got torched by Maryland. Maryland. <laughs> I, 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 I know they're, they're a little improved, and that quarterback unfortunately went down with the season-ending injury, but that's still Maryland, and you let them run up and down and throw and do whatever they wanted against you. You're going up against a very, very good top five offense, and it's going to get ugly, ugly. Yeah, I, man, there's no, there's no evidence that Texas, with new coach Tom Herman, can do anything defensively to slow down that offense. I mean, I just don't no. see it. So, you know, that's where I'm at, and, and uh, you know, if we're if we're looking at if we're looking at you know d- teams with double digit favorites. There is a parlay out there that I think looks good. It's the USC-Oklahoma State parlay this week, I think, to cover. If you're looking at favorites, and I don't usually like to, to look at favorites, but I think both of those teams, double-digit favorites, should should be fine this week. Another big game, maybe the biggest game uh, in terms of a ranked matchup, the biggest game, Clemson-Louisville, primetime, Sully. At Louisville, Clemson, three-point favorites on the road. We know how exciting that game was last year. Lamar Jackson absolutely tore up North Carolina last week. Clemson won a defensive battle against Auburn. This is a big game, and I know that Clemson, top to bottom, has the better overall team. But when you got Lamar Jackson and you got him and and your strength is going against another team's strength, you always, I think, have a chance. So I'm more interested to see how that Clemson offense does because – Something pretty obvious is telling me 14 points isn't going to get it done this week. No, not at all. Like You know that Lamar Jackson is going to put up more than 14 points. Heisman Trophy winner from last year has that in the bag. And sure, it's going up against the best defensive line in the country, but that strength versus strength is going to be really, really fun to watch. And then, not to mention, it's at home, too. It, it helps that it's not in depth Valley. If it even in last year, depth Valley, the, the storyline coming out of that game, Louisville may have lost the game, but Lamar Jackson outplayed Deshaun Watson 100%. Put the team on his back, had him in that game from the very end, and it was absolutely one of the more entertaining games of the entire season last year. And I expect a lot of the same. I think this one's going to come down to the wire again. It's definitely up to Lamar Jackson to, to carry this team yet again. I think he's going to come up short. I think Clemson's a little bit too talented on the defensive side of the ball, but it's going to be a fun one nonetheless. I think Louisville has a chance to steal this game. The, the mind says Clemson, the heart wants to say Louisville. And the only reason I think Louisville can do it, Sully, is because I'm still not quite there with the Clemson offense. Um, and maybe this is a broader picture that won't get exposed or brought up until they play somebody else. Louisville does have their share, fair share of flaws. But when you have Lamar Jackson, we have a playmaker. I remember last year's game, Clemson got up early and then Lamar started kind of wheel. It was a, it was a seesaw game. But I need to see more out of that Clemson offense. I think this is a much better game for them. I think they're going to win this game by about a touchdown. But I'm still, I'm still not quite there with them on a national level yet because they, they do have tons of talent. Their defense is nasty. Their, their pass rush is sensational. 
But let's see more of that offense. That's what I want to see. And I think we will see this week. Yeah, they had Daniel Jeremiah pulled five. He doesn't ask five every week. And he pulled five general managers and scouts from around the, around the NFL. And he, this week he asked them, who's the most talented player on the field in this game? And, and there's a lot of dudes, as I like to say, there's a lot of dudes on this field that are going to be playing on Sundays. And three out of the five or four out of the five picked Lamar Jackson. And if one of the bigger quotes that came out of the article was uh, one of the GMs said that Lamar might not make the right throw in the first quarter, or, or he might make a couple of mistakes early. But when the when the game is on the line, you can count on Lamar Jackson to get it done. And I hope that he gets a chance with the game on the line for a little bit of redemption from last year at yeah. home uh, against that Clemson defense, strength on strength. That that would be a very tasty treat on Saturday night at home too. I mean, we saw his his coming out party in a big game at home where he plays very well last year against Florida State. So. Yeah, Ooh, this that could, game was nasty. This could be good. Yeah, I know. I I feel like he'd rather play during the day. You know, like something tells yeah. me he gets up for those. You know, sleepy noon, noon games. They're always good. Everyone's sleepy, and Lamar just has two touchdown runs in the first quarter. And you're like, what just happened? Oh, we're in a we're in a game. Like, yeah. So yeah. All right, Sully. Before we get to the to the main event that I saved last for you, we gotta we gotta talk about Bama for a little bit this week. It's they're playing Colorado State. They're huge favorites, but just. On the front, because I don't think we talked about this since they've played, but you look at them every year and you think they are the standard. They are, are nasty. But if you're judging Alabama right now based on a curve, based on you know their own standards, do you like how this team is treading? Do you like where this team's going to go? I mean, there might be some nitpicking to do, but there are a lot of strengths with this football team. And, uh, yeah, it's downright frightening for everybody else. Absolutely. I think they're, they're still the class of the ball. They're the, the top dogs, and everybody's going to be chasing after them all year. And I think they're almost going to be forgotten about because there's nobody that's really going to test them uh, until that, that LSU game the first week in November. They, mm-hmm. it's, they're going to be forgotten about. They're going to be playing Colorado State. Sure, they have Tennessee, a big rivalry game there in the middle, but I don't see that being much of a game, as much as I hate to say it. They, they were the game. They were the marquee game week one against Florida State. They ended up coming out and winning that and really – uh, imposing their will on the Seminoles there in the second half and winning all three phases of the game. And now, now they're playing, they're, they're, they're ripping off a few wins against Colorado State, Vanderbilt, and Ole Miss, I think, is in that stretch as well. And yeah, it, it's, 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 another, it's another year where it's going to be 11 wins and 11, 12 wins at the end of the season, and they're going to be, they're going to be pushing for the playoffs. It's, it's as good as gold to, yeah. to put, put money on Bama into the playoffs. <laughs> it's all three phases. That's the thing. I mean, they dominate the trenches. They're so well coached. Somehow, still underrated on special teams. I mean, it's just it, it's find it, trying it's, to find a crack the in the Pete Carroll Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> yeah, it's the Pete Carroll Seattle Seahawks recipe on special teams. Where you're, he's throwing out starters. You have a starting running back going out there and blocking a punt against yeah. Florida State in a giant game. Like yeah. that, you don't see that in a lot of places. And I think they obviously have the ability to do that because it's the starting running back says, that oh, wait, we have a f- two five-stars behind you. <laughs> and the funny things about this team, going into the season, they lost two linebackers, two starting linebackers, and everybody's still sharpening them in to the playoffs. It's crazy. Anywhere else, you lose two starting linebackers, you're like, ah, you know, maybe make a run at it, but come yeah. on. Defense is a big hole, but nope. They're, they're going to be just fine in Tuscaloosa. So scary, so scary. Well, we'll see what anybody else can do. All right, Sully. 
it's that time on the money mitch effect for the game of all games in your in your uh oh man yeah florida and tennessee i think it's safe to say now there have been better there have been better you know additions of this rivalry game um there there have been better and i guess you could say worse you know circumstances going into the game but this is one of the more peculiar ones, at least from the outside. Would you agree with that? It, it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot of questions going into this game. A lot who's, of questions. Who's the go-to quarterback on each team? What are the defenses going to look like? How will some of the young players handle the, the pressure that this game brings on? Florida's a four-and-a-half-point favorite. The, the Lions had a lot of movement on it. I, I've got to say they mm-hmm. opened it over a touchdown. Now it's down to four-and-a-half at home. Over-under is about 49 points. It seems kind of high for this game. And, Sully, we'll start here. Going into Florida and Tennessee, what stands out about this matchup this year? We know the history. We know how much the hatred lies for both teams. What stands Mm -hmm. out in the 2017 edition? I think uh, Florida's lack of identity on offense versus the Tennessee defense. It's a little banked up. Losing Derek Kirkland Jr. And and then you're starting a a middle linebacker that has a lot of – question marks too on the road in Colton Jumper but I think it really does come down to the trenches this this game is always won by the team that has the most rushing yards and it's going to be a sloppy sloppy game in Gainesville it is 80% chance of rain uh, with thunderstorms in the early afternoon it's going to be a heavy dose of, of ground and pound classic football and I, I think you got to give the edge to Tennessee in that aspect with, with Todd Kelly or uh, excuse me John Kelly at running back, established, a very talented runner. Sure, it's a lesser offensive line against a, a, a better defensive line, um, but I, I don't quite trust Florida after that Michigan game. It is the Michigan offensive defensive line, one of the best in the country. That offensive line had a lot of question marks, still has a lot of question marks, and they're also losing George Scarlett, still out with an indefinite suspension, and Antonio Callaway, still out with an indefinite suspension, two of their best offensive weapons the two best offensive weapons for the Florida Gators. So, and, and you brought it up, too. Who's who's the quarterback? Felipe Franks is going to get the start. But Malik Sayer is, is pushing right behind him. I, I think he has to go with, with, with Felipe Franks. Sure, he's a little bit of a loose cannon at, at times, but he's the better quarterback. Malik Sayer is, is looking down throws, and you just can't do that against an NCT defense. No, you can't. Um, but I will say, too, Florida's defense, you know they have playmakers on that side of the ball. Even in that Michigan game, it was a lone bright spot how their defense in the early part of that game was able to make plays. Oh, they are nasty. They are nasty. That's that's another another big aspect of this game, too. Tennessee's quarterback position has some question marks. Quinn Dormy, I think, can take care of the football, and he, and he showed it against Georgia Tech. That's why Jared Garantano did not get in earlier in the game because you can't afford to turn the ball over. Uh, against an offense like Georgia Tech where you have limited possession. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way when you're on the road in the SEC and it's a very hostile environment. You can't turn the ball over and get a moment, give them any momentum. you yeah. got to step on their throat, step early, and I think that's going to be, be established through the run game. Especially in a sloppy game where the passing might not be there. You turn the ball over, you get behind, it's going to be hard to put up points quickly. Absolutely. If, if you're Florida, and I guess for Tennessee too, but you really got to set up the run. We know how Tennessee's run defense struggled. I know Georgia Tech runs the triple option, but you know it's a point of concern. It's a point of emphasis, especially in a sloppy game. I, I think it's going to come down to that. Can Tennessee's defense stop the run? I, I, if they yeah, can, absolutely. I really like their chances. If not, I think Florida's going to eat up time of possession and, and probably win this game. 
Yeah, I, absolutely. There, there are huge question marks going towards Bob Shoup's way. They hired him to improve this defense, and sure, the defense was banged up uh, last year, but he gave over uh, you know a country mile in the last three games against Kentucky and Vanderbilt and Missouri. And those those three those three run games aren't exactly the most prolific in the no. Southeastern Conference. No. And then you go on the flip side, sure, sure, you're losing your starting running back with Florida, but they still have some talented dudes on that side of the ball. You have a, a, a pretty inspired and, I'm sure, pissed-off offensive line with a lot of people asking questions about them the last two weeks. So that it, it's time, boys. It's time to step up uh, along the defensive front for Tennessee Volunteers. All right, before we get to picks, Sully, what as a Tennessee as a Tennessean through and through, what does this game mm-hmm. against the Gators mean to you? Oh, it's everything. Absolutely everything. It's it, especially as a younger Tennessee fan, you talk to the older guys and it's uh it's Bama. But as a younger younger Tennessee fan, all you know from a very young age, especially growing up with the with the Spurrier formal rivalry, that it is is Florida. You hate Florida with every fiber of your body and you hear that putrid fight song. And you see the fans gator chopping. You see the blue and orange line up against the orange and white. You know it's time. And it, it's a different week. And, it, and this is this is what makes college football special. Is it, it's the same way with the game and, and whether it's playing in in Ann Arbor or in Columbus or, or or Texas OU or any of the great rivalries across college football. It's Sunday and Monday. You know that it's Florida week, and you almost start getting that pit in your stomach that you know that you're playing the Gators on Saturday and it just builds up and I cannot wait to see this game kicked off in the swamp on Saturday. It's just absolutely everything. Yeah, well said. Very well said. Um, it's a rivalry game. It means a lot to everybody invested. The, the hatred is real, but it's a competition that I think either side will agree. You know, they wouldn't have any other way. Uh, and that's just, absolutely. that's just how it is. Well, all right. You love to hate them so much, you wouldn't know what to do without them. It's one of those things. <laughs> That's true. If the rivalry <laughs> ended, you'd just be sad. Like, where is my rival? Like, yeah. Where are they? I don't know where they are. Right. Where are they? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. All right. Do you like your team? Do you like your team to win, cover? How, how do you think it goes for the Vols? Do they go into the swamp uh, and get it done? I, uh, I'm pulling a little uh, reverse hijinks here. I, I did it on Move the Sticks earlier, and I'm, I'm picking Florida. It worked last year. Uh, to, and I said I'm not picking Florida until Tennessee ends the streak. Well, I lied. Here's another streak. Tennessee hasn't won since 2003 in the swamp, okay. and I'm picking Florida again. I think it's going to be a 10-10 overtime game. Tennessee's going to kick a field goal about 13-10, and then Florida's going to score and uh, win the game 16-13 in a, in, a, in a classic, just sloppy, nasty rivalry game. <laughs> well, I will say, too, I, I like the strategy of keep the reverse jinks going. Like, yeah. I, I look forward to five years from now when you're like, they haven't won at home in 75-degree weather with a chance of rain on a, <laughs> an odd year. Don't pitch like in that. Florida, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Just pulling out every 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 grass, play the straw I can yeah. to, to, to pull the reverse hijinks, exactly. I yeah, do, it, I, it, it's not it's crazy unless it works. It worked last year, but we'll stick together. I think it's going to be an ugly game. I think there's going to be a lot of rain. I think there's going to be some special teams miscues. Don't really trust the kicking game in a situation like this. I do, unfortunately, think Florida's going to win this game. And probably by a touchdown, uh, I'd say, to push the cover there. Um, but I, I just – this is so intriguing. I, it's pretty much a betting stay away for me because I don't trust either Absolutely. of these teams. You know, I, I don't – over-under is probably your surest bet here because 
it's so take you under by a you mile. Know. If it's at forty three, <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, oh forty nine right now. So geez. Oh forty nine. Oh yeah. yeah. That's your bet of the weekend. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just it's hard to trust either of these teams, you know. And I guess if I had to pick one thing, if pressed to trust one thing, it'd probably be that Florida defense of all the aspects in this game. So um, that's we'll the see. most that's the most trustworthy side of the ball, absolutely. We'll see what happens. But Sully, enjoy it. Don't have a panic attack. We've we all saw the carnage you laid waste to last year during this game. Um, be safe. <laughs> yeah. Be smart. Have a spotter. Have somebody with you at all times, and don't hesitate to. Uh, call for help <laughs> yeah, absolutely man appreciate it all right thanks for coming on this week we'll be chatting again with sean sullivan money mitch effect thanks for coming on the show no balls. all right big thanks to sully taking time to chat about college football right in his wheelhouse some big games coming up this weekend and I hope his volunteers do good, not just for his sake. I mean, obviously for his sake, but for my sake and for the property of uh, whatever room he's in when he's watching the game. Big thanks to Sully for coming on the show. Uh, he's doing big things on NFL Network. I'm with the Six Podcast and some other things as well. So make sure you catch all of his stuff there. Now it's time to talk with Jose Young, one of my favorite guests on the show as well. A- another reoccurring guest. We're going to recap his time covering Mayweather McGregor. Talk a little Indians as well. I gotta gotta throw the streak in there. Twenty two straight now. It's remarkable. Uh, but the main main talking point is Golovkin Alvarez, Canola Triple G, September sixteenth. One more day away. It's only a day away. It happens tomorrow. We're gonna talk about that. Who has the edge? What the win could mean for each fighter, and if it's gonna be the last time that they're in the ring together. A lot of people don't think so. But here it is. Jose Young's now talking boxing on the Money Mitch Cup. All right, it's always a pleasure to talk to my next guest, especially when it's a big fight week, and this is on the eve, about 48 hours away from the fight of the year, Golovkin and Alvarez. Jose Youngs, welcome back to the Money Mitch Effect. I'm excited always to talk to you, but this time especially excited. Yeah, what's up, man? I'm always I'm always happy to be on, but like you said, it's, it's always fun to be on when there's a big fight. And for me, and you and I have been talking about this fight for months and months even but i mean we watched this fight get announced and to me this is the biggest fight of the year i know mayweather mcgregor was the money fight but to me as a as just a big boxing fan i i can't remember the last time i was I, I think i'm more excited for this fight than mayweather pacquiao i was just thinking about this the other day and i'm clearly more excited for this fight than mayweather pacquiao because of the timing of that fight yeah. To be perfectly honest, the last time I was this excited for a fight, and I was just thinking about this, was probably Pacquiao, probably Pacquiao Marquez four. I think that was the last time. That was a big one. Uh, I was pretty excited for Cotto and Canelo. That was when Canelo turned the corner. Uh, he he did have that one loss to Mayweather, which you which uh, you can't really hold against him. But I felt like his unanimous decision when he because that's when he won all of his belts was against Miguel Cotto Mm -hmm. and then he followed up with a knockout of Amir Khan so I I was personally excited for Miguel Cotto but this Golovkin and versus Canelo is what Pacquiao Mayweather should have been like 2008 just the two best fighters in their weight class arguably on planet earth fighting in their prime 
Yeah, I uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second. I do think too another one I was excited to see, just on what you know the sheer violence that was about to take place was a couple years ago, uh, Golovkin and Stevens when he said, "Are you serious?" Yeah, <laughs> right before yeah, been, you just knew something bad was going to happen to Mister Stevens, and it did. Yeah, that was a that was. That was the one where Stevens like retired on the stool or something, yeah, right? Yeah, and, back to the yeah. back to the ring. Yeah, uh, that was like I, I. That's right around when I was hearing about Golovkin because I, I had heard about him. I read articles, but that was the first fight I had watched, and he blew me away. Yeah. And from that point on, I think I've watched all of his fights. The look on Stevens's face when he gets knocked down in the second round is like, man, this guy hits hard. Yeah, that's and he what said I remember. He hasn't been the same since. No, no, he hasn't. Uh, but before we get into that fight, and we do have a lot to break down with that, I do have to ask you, you know, you were one of the lucky ones that got to cover Mayweather, McGregor, and we've since recapped that, we've gone over it, but just on your front, your experience, what was it like covering that fight the entire weekend leading up to, and then ultimately the fight and the post, post-match post reaction? It was a weird vibe. Um, it was in Las Vegas, so and I've been in Vegas for numerous amount of, of quote-unquote big fights, big money fights, and... I thought this was going to be a really, really big one, and it didn't really, like, just the, the city, the strip itself, it didn't really feel like it was a big, big, like, it didn't feel like a big deal there in person uh, until we got to the arena and we saw the fan, and until we got to the weigh-ins, I should say, because the arena wasn't even sold out. There wasn't, like, a whole section of seats completely empty, and I actually thought they, they had purposely not sold tickets for that, maybe because it was a bad view or something, but then in the post-fight press conference... Leonard Ellerby, uh, May- CEO of Mayweather Promotions, just said, like, we can't sell every ticket. They just didn't sell tickets to that one of them. So it was, it was a very – it was a weird vibe leading up to a weird fight. I got, I got the sense a lot of people weren't taking it seriously. Like Mayweather Pacquiao, you, it, was like a, it was like a finally this is happening moment. Mm-hmm. And for McGregor Mayweather, it was much more like let's get this over with. This fight isn't real, blah, blah, blah. So – and they they definitely priced the fans out. I've been to all of Connor's fights in the in the in the U.S. and nine times out of ten, the Irish travel with Connor and they, they they fill the entire arena and they have his back. But it's expensive to fly from Ireland to Vegas, and they couldn't they just, they just couldn't afford tickets during fight night. So a very strange vibe, but a, a spectacle nonetheless, and one that will go down in history for sure. Yeah, it was it was weird, you know. It, it had that feel of a big event, but to classify it as a big fight, I just I agree with you. I don't think it was quite there. The, the last thing I want to say on this, and and I don't know if this is going to be a trend-setting moment or an infamous trend-setting moment, but do you think in the future we're going to see because of streaming issues, because of technical failures, fight times get pushed back? Because that was the big thing on the outside yeah. was the fight wasn't. You know, I was at a party watching it where the stream went down and everyone's like, what's happening? They announce it later. I get a sense, a bad sense, if you will, that this could keep happening as we move forward in this century. Yeah, and the big one that people lost was the Showtime one, uh, who was experiencing some issues if you were trying to buy the fight that night. But the big the big loss was the people who tried to buy the fight through UFC Fight Pass, mm-hmm. which is the UFC streaming service, because... A UFC fight, like the high most bought UFC pay per view, like isn't even at two million. It's at like one point eight or one point six million. This fight, they haven't announced the 
the the total number, but Dana White keeps saying six point five million. I don't know if it's I don't know if that's true. I tend to take what Dana White says with a grain of salt, uh, especially when it comes to pay per view buys. But let's say six point five million is accurate. The UFC Fight Pass has never sold more than I bet they haven't even sold five hundred thousand streams in one pay for one pay, UFC pay per view. So they weren't ready. Their servers weren't ready. So. They crashed, they gave everyone a refund, and then probably a week later, the UFC, I can't remember off the top of my head, they announced a partnership with a third party to handle their streaming services. So the UFC was basically like, all right, we're, we're going to leave this to the professionals. So if it happens again, I'm sure we're going to see fights pushed back to later, but uh, the UFC is at least taking steps in the right direction to make sure it doesn't happen. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I just, I don't know if they're capable, I thought the same thing, of of handling the bandwidth, if you will, for these big mega fights that'll see numbers that you know they're not used to. Uh, I do also want to bring up one one other question before we move on. Knowing what you know about Conor McGregor and knowing the the bank amount that he just pulled in the ridiculous haul, does he fight again in the UFC? And if so, is it pretty soon? Is Diaz going to happen? What, what's your sense on if he fights again? Uh, from my sense and what I've been told, and from what I've heard, he's not going to fight in 2017. I think that's I think that's obviously not going to happen. Uh, if he was, he probably would have been on that MSG card, but I don't blame him for taking time off. He made like $200 million, so, and he just had a baby. Uh, so he had a baby and then we're, went right into camp. So he's spending time with his family. Honestly, interestingly enough, uh, I was about 50-50 on whether he was going to fight again, but just a few days ago, Connor on his Instagram was like, he's like, right now he's like somewhere in the like on a yacht in the Mediterranean and this massive and this is you can follow all this on his in, on his social medias and through his manager and stuff this massive yacht pulled up next to him that was about six times the size of Connor's yacht and had all this expensive equipment and Connor was basically saying on Twitter that that yacht has motivated him to keep fighting because he wants to get that yacht so wow. which is which is per like if it hey if a yacht is what gets Connor back in the octagon I'm all for it but that is the most Conor, Conor McGregor statement I can think of where a yacht is the, the – out of everything that I could possibly predict, a yacht would be near the end of what would get Conor back in the UFC. Wow. No, it, it makes sense given the personality, given the need for for the lifestyle especially. Um, yeah, with more money than he'll ever need. It, it's crazy what gets some of these athletes going. Uh, but I hope we see it. I hope we see it You know, soon in the Diaz fights out there. Some other yeah. big fights as well. I think we're looking forward to as uh, as well. So talking with Jose Youngs on the Money Mitch Effect. Jose, one last UFC topic before we get into the big fight this weekend. Got to talk about John Jones. Because yeah. I don't know. I, I understand the process here, but it still seems, I don't want to say fishy, but just a little weird. It's not your traditional guy fails a drug test. We do the, the business side of things and we move on. Jones is still openly fighting his turnable um, you know, steroid suspension where the B test comes back positive. But Jose, I mean, it seems clear cut on one side he cheated again, but is there any possibility that he didn't? Like, are we to believe anything that he says at this point? It's, I don't, I don't know what to, what, what to believe at this point. I mean, John, if, if, there, if, if this had happened, like you said, if this had happened to any other fighter, this would be like, oh, another fighter pop for steroids. Like, say mm-hmm. Chris Weidman or anyone, or like Steve Miocic pop for steroids. It would be a big travesty. People would hate them. They'd lose their belt, and then eventually they'd come back. But this is John Jones we're talking about. And 
This, when I say this is an uncharted water for him, it's not. I mean, he's had the DUI. He's tested positive for cocaine. He's had the hit and run. He failed the. He had the anti-doping violation for UFC 200, and then he gets popped again, and then he fails the B sample too. And for all those people pointing that, oh, he passed the blood test, the, what they were testing for wouldn't even be found in a blood test. It's only urine test. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what to believe. But where there's smoke, there's fire. And when there's John Jones, there's smoke all the time, literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I would, I, from this point on, until you saw the hands down the suspension, I'm not going to really believe anything he says. He, in my mind, he was the greatest of all time. But I don't think you can you can call someone the GOAT if they not – say that if he had failed once and it was a tainted supplement, yeah, okay. Like I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You're, you had a great career, but like – Seven times the strike for John Jones, so he can't be the goat in my mind. Do you think? I mean, he's gone on record today saying he never cheated. He put it yeah. on his own kids and his family. But do you think a lifetime ban's possible here? I know I, he's no, got I, his issues, but it would only be the second "quote unquote" PED violation. Do you think a lifetime ban is warranted or I possible don't, here? I, I don't think it's warranted. Uh, I, I'm much into the MLB third. Third strike, you're out. Uh, I, I think a two or three year, maybe. Uh, plus, like for people calling for a lifetime ban, I, I don't know where they would get that. Like, who's banning? Where's he banned from? Like, he's under contract with the UFC. I guess the UFC can just like if they ban him, that means he's out of his UFC contract. And if he goes over to Russia or Kazakhstan or Dagestan or whatever, they don't follow the Nevada State Athletic Commission rules. Of course not. <laughs> they don't follow athletic commission, so. If John Jones is, gets a quote-unquote lifetime ban from the UFC, that means his contract is null and void. Maybe he could go to Bellator and he gets stuck on the – he could find the Indian reservation like they always do or stick him in the UK like they did with Kimbo after his failed drug test. But say John Jones gets the quote-unquote lifetime ban and his contract is terminated, why wouldn't Risen Fighting Federation sign him and just make Fedor versus John Jones in like Kazakhstan and just blow numbers out of the water? The UFC doesn't want that, and nor like so. I think best case scenario for the UFC is like a two three year ban because his contract would be frozen. He wouldn't legally be allowed to fight anywhere still, and then when he is his suspension is over, they still have the rights to him. So this lifetime ban, I don't I don't personally see how that would even be like how that would even be possible or implemented yeah I, i'm i'm in full agreement on the three strikes you're out policy and as you said it would be bad business for the ufc because right. you're not banning him from all competitive fighting that that's the big thing there's no way to do that any of these other present of these other promotions would gladly take the name the numbers exactly. that john jones would stick, take, stick, john jones is already a megastar but stick him in japan have him fight Fedor. Have him fight Alexander Melianenko. Another we talk about bad people like John Jones is a saint next to Alexander oh. Melianenko. Uh, have him fight Bob Sapp in in like South Korea, and that would probably break gate records. Wow. Uh, so wow. UFC doesn't want that. Yeah, he could do some spots at New Japan Pro Wrestling too. I mean, just Dude, I mean, he could go to WWE and fight John Jones in in, in the squared circle. Well, we already know Ronda's going to go there. I mean, she's practically there. I mean, yeah. Uh, so John Jones and Ronda in the WWE with Brock Lesnar. I mean. The UFC does not want John Jones going anywhere. No, and by the way, this is a nice time to bring up uh, our little WWE minute that we always have. I think, and I know you're a big fan of hers, but I think a Rousey Charlotte Flair match up, match could be really, really good. 
I know crossover doesn't work, but I, I, I think I think there might be something there. I think that's the match. I re- I do too. Uh, I know she fought she. Ronda is is um is when I say a fan of wrestling, she's not just a fan of WWE. I mean, she follows all independent wrestling. She was at the PWG Battle of Los Angeles a few weeks ago. I personally think, just from interacting with her team, is that she's a bigger professional wrestling fan than MMA fan. I mean, if she could, if if Ronda in 2010 when she was first getting big. If you had said, oh, you can be a UFC champion or you can be a WWE women's champion, she would have taken the WWE championship back then. I mean, there's videos of her reacting to wrestling. She go, she was at WrestleMania with The Rock. Uh, her One of her best friends, Shayna Baszler, uh, just lost in the Mae Young Classic uh, in the finals. It, a Ronda Charlotte would be awesome for numbers. Uh, it would be like le- the daughter of a Hall of Famer, da- daughter of who I know you consider like the greatest of all time. Yeah. Rick Blair, uh, who's thankfully back and health, healthy again. But uh, if I'm the WWE, I want to book the four horsewomen versus the four horsewomen. I would do Charlotte, Sasha, Bailey, and uh, Becky Lynch, who are the four horsewomen of NXT, against uh, uh, Ronda, Barina, uh, Jessamine Duke, and uh, Shayna Baszler, who they who call themselves the four horsewomen of MMA. Stick that at Survivor Series in November. Uh, just to make it like a classic Survivor Series 4-on-4 matchup. Make Shayna do all the heavy lifting. Ronda can do a hip toss or two. But a 4-on-4 matchup would be great to plant the seeds. And then if we are going to do Charlotte and Ronda, they can do that at Royal Rumble or WrestleMania. But, uh, yeah, I'm all with you on that one. Wow. Well, <laughs> I, I want to see it. You know, if you haven't noticed. I know. I, I You have it all mapped out. This is good. They should hire you as a booker because we're pretty ah, much there. Uh, all right. Jose Young's is that time. It's fight weekend in the main event of one of the best fights we've seen in a long time, not just this year, it will be Canelo Alvarez versus Gennady Golovkin, Triple G. Let's start by looking at both of these fighters, Jose. Saul Canelo Alvarez is only 27 years old, and a lot of people didn't know who he was until Floyd Mayweather said, let's, uh, let's take this fight. He didn't have a good showing then. He was just a child at the time. But in that, in the time since that loss, his only loss of his professional career, he's a three-time world champion in two weight classes. He's held the Ring Magazine middleweight title since 2015. He's a light middleweight world champion as well, or was a light middleweight champion as well. This is a guy that's pedigree. We know the Mexican fi- Mexican fighting pedigree that exists in boxing, but he's added to that lineage. Jose, on your analysis of this guy of canola alvarez were you expecting this kind of meteoric rise in the last couple of years because i don't think a lot of people outside the boxing world really expected it to happen this fast still only 27 years old yeah and i agree i expected it to happen but not this fast when he fought floyd i think that was a good thing and a bad thing I, he definitely fought him too early uh, i think if they fought now canelo would, would wipe the floor with floyd he's bigger he's quicker he hits harder I think technically he's one of the best boxers in that division uh, in all of boxing, honestly. But Floyd did the smart thing. He fought he he fought Canelo before he was ready, and Floyd's obviously the big the biggest draw in box offing history. And Canelo is the biggest superstar in Mexico, probably since Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. I'm not really counting Oscar De La Hoya because uh, I don't really consider him a full Mexican, but it is what it is. So I think that catapulted him, and from there. He's done his part. Like you've seen fighters that have fought Floyd in the past who who've retired, like Oscar De La Hoya retired, Marcus Maidana fought him back to back times, retired, Andre Bertos lost, Manny Pacquiao's lost, R- Robert Guerrero lost and retired, Victor Ortiz has looked like a shell of himself, Ricky Hatton retired too. So 
all of these fighters fight Floyd and then they, they disappear. Canelo lost, but then he fought again in March and then July and then May and then so so on and so forth. So, and he's not just winning like close, narrow decisions. He's winning with knockouts. I mean, he he took the soul from Amir Khan and then put the beat down on Miguel Cotto. So, um, smart, smart, smart promoting on Oscar De La Hoya's part where using the loss to Floyd to propel his young fighter into the, the stratosphere. It was. Uh, and I think his ability to just move on, take the next fight really helped him. He yeah. has a lot of power. you know. He, he And I will say we're going to get to the other guy that has a lot of power too. <laughs> but lightning-like quickness, and that's what you notice with certain fighters is can they can they hit hard, but can they can they throw fast punches? It's cliche to say this, but Alvarez's speed is second to none right now, and it, the scary thing is we don't know if he's even approached his prime yet. The win over Liam Smith by knockout uh, last September, a, a year ago, to uh, to this coming uh, Sunday or, yeah. or so, was one of his highlights as well. He beats Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. in a uh, very boring fight that you know Cesar Chavez. Or because it was so it was so lopsided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a guy that. Chavez Jr. just looked a little scared out there, and <laughs> for for obvious reasons. But it was after that fight when he when Max Kellerman asked him point blank, "Who's next?" And we've been waiting for it for years. Everybody wanted the fight to happen. It was delayed, delayed, and then finally he said, "Gennady, my friend, you're next." And he spoke in English, which, by the way, big moment because he does not speak in English much. So oh. when he said that, that was a pretty big deal. Golovkin was there, walks out to the ring, and the fight was made. Alvarez will fight. The fighter, Triple G from Kazakhstan, who at 35 years old, now he is definitely getting up there in age, but he is a stone-cold assassin. <laughs> Golovkin is undefeated professionally, has not lost since the Olympic Games in 2004 in the finals there. And just like a young Floyd Mayweather, just rings out his professional career, 33 knockouts and 38 fights. Golovkin comes into this fight in a perch position, but Jose, a lot of people are talking about the last fight, and this is where I want to start yeah. off with the jumping off point, because from, you know, about 2013 to about the end of uh, 2016, he was a killer, destroying everybody in his in his way, hadn't had a decision in a long time, and then he fights Daniel Jacobs, who is a hell of a fighter in his own right. That fight goes the distance, was really, really close, definitely for Triple G standards, and some people had thought maybe he's slipping. Maybe Triple G is not at that level anymore. Triple G said, wait a minute. If I knock him out, Alvarez still won't take the fight. So is there is any of these polar, polar opposites to be believed? Do you think Triple G could actually have been sandbagging a little to get Alvarez to take the fight? Thinking he's I mean, I do think that theory might have water. Uh, I don't know because Triple G, to me, is, is, is the consummate professional. He's, he's a gentleman. He doesn't talk a lot of trash. He's just a boxing fan in general. So if if he did, I don't think it was. I don't think that was his decision. Like in the in the moment, I think people were telling him to. But like you said, Daniel Jacobs is great. I'm also in the camp where like you see this a lot when when Deontay Wilder fights, where when he has to fight one of his mandatory opponents, where he basically takes the whole fight off just because he knows all he has to do is land one punch, and then he can move on to the money fight after. Basically, like. Let me just get through this, and then I'll take the big fight after. And maybe can, uh, Triple G did that, but I, but like I said, he's he seems to be the consummate professional. He's never really called out fighters for big money fights. He's wanted. He said himself like he wants to fight Canelo, 
because he wants to prove that he's the best. Not doesn't have to do with money. Doesn't have to do with belts. He would fight Canelo in an, in an empty in an empty facility. So yeah, well, I, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but it's if it was anyone else besides Triple G, I probably would say yeah, but not with him. I think part of it is Alvarez didn't Canelo didn't take the fight early because maybe he thought he wasn't ready yet and maybe well, he thought Triple G was I, I do think there's truth to that to say that yeah, he was waiting for a loss that, like that, that I don't know a lot with uh, Oscar De La Hoya honestly I mean just talking with Canelo like off records and stuff or his camp like Canelo would have fought Triple G five years ago mm-hmm. but it's it's his team and he recognized it and I don't blame his team one bit I think this is the perfect time for this fight because five years ago we're not taught this isn't the big money fight and uh Tri- triple g got a few wins in canelo had the had those fights with Cotto and uh chavez jr and this is the perfect time but canelo would have fought him five years ago for half the money just because he wants to fight but this is the perfect time so his camp did the smart thing it's interesting to me how somebody in triple g's case can be like you said the perfect gentleman nice respectful hardly ever talks trash and be a totally different person. <laughs> There's this maniacal psycho in the ring that has knocked out 33 people. But, you know, I, I watch him fight, and, and that's the thing. It's power, power, power. It's heavy hands. It's landing combinations, getting in harm's way, but finding a way out of it. You look at these last couple fights. I mean, Jacobs was close, but look at the last four or five before that. He had yeah. the quote that I'm going to read right now, Jose. There are no survivors in my fight. I was ready for the fight to start immediately after reading that. Yeah, that's what I'm, I mean. Triple G and like like you like like we both have been saying, he is the nicest guy outside of the ring. If you saw him walking down the street, he does not look like a boxer because he's always smiling. He's friendly. He's a well dressed man. But when he steps into that squared circle with those ten ounce gloves, twelve ounce gloves, someone is going out on a stretcher. I mean, and he has power. That's very different. I mean, yeah, he. A lot of people in this in these lower weight classes or in this weight class can whittle you down with bug bites, and then like like you like we talked about with Stevens where he retired, um, but Triple G like he has crippling power. I mean, we talk like Conor McGregor like he can stop a fight whenever he wants. I mean, you saw like when he fought Dominic Wade, it was like a what second or third round. It was a knockout. It wasn't even yeah. a TKO. It was a knockout. But then he he'll fight like Martin Murray, and he does the same thing in the 11th round. So he can knock you out in the first round, and then if you survive that buzz saw in the beginning, you still have nine rounds to go, and he doesn't slow down. Uh, it's not like Connor where he can knock you out in the first round, and then he, and then he gasses out, and then he, he pulls out like this spectacular close decision. Triple G starts off strong, and then he doesn't take his foot off the gas. And when I say gas, it's like, his stamina is second to none. His power is second to none. And this is such an interesting style where Canelo is such a technically gifted boxer that we've never seen hurt. I mean, he wasn't hurt against Floyd Mayweather. So to have a knockout artist like Triple G step into the ring against such a technically gifted young athlete like Canelo is is the perfect fight for this day and age. I'm just still upset this fight isn't taking place in L.A. Um, I know it's T-Mobile Arena, but Triple G pretty much made a, a new home in the forum you could have done this at staples you could uh it should be in la but this I mean, good Madison square garden too he's had a few yeah. there but the money's there and there's always a big september fight in las vegas and with mayweather retired they needed 
another big one. So I, I, I see why they – it's also in the T-Mobile arena, which is a beautiful arena. Uh, but, yeah, I think it would have been something like yeah, – and I m- remember Magic Johnson wanted to stick it in Dodger Stadium, which I think <laughs> would have been – that would have been so fun to watch an outdoor boxing match against him, like, like when Foreman fought Ali. But yeah. it is what it is, and the, the money's in Vegas. Tyson Nor- – or uh, Ali Norton as well, too. Yeah, in the man, 70s. It, would have been a, it would have been a sight to see. Well, I did appreciate them stealing the thunder from Mayweather-McGregor by announcing their fight before and kind of stealing sure. the weekend. But it's going down in two days, September 16th. Jose Young's here on the Money Mitch Effect. And for the matchup, for how each fighter's going to win, you've outlined the clear point. It's, uh, it's Canelo is just technically gifted, has speed, has a speed advantage. He's a younger fighter. You'd expect him to be fresh, although Triple G's in great shape as well. But what can Canelo do to avoid making himself vulnerable to the knockout. Do you expect him to win a lot of rounds early and just have an advantage going into the rounds? I think Canelo will win early and then Triple G could I, if Triple G is going to win, I personally think it's to be a late like a 8 or 9 rounds 8 or ninth round stoppage, but for Canelo to win, he has to constantly go in and out. He has to fluster. He has to fluster Triple G like Floyd Mayweather flustered Canelo where uh, he would jump in and you hit him with a bunch of hard shots and then jump out and have have Triple G constantly moving forward and hitting nothing but air, uh, which Canelo can do. He can cut the corner. He can avoid the jab. He can avoid the, the hooks and everything. But he's never fought someone with the power of Triple G. And like you and I, like you and I were saying, I can't remember a time when Canelo was ever seriously hurt where he's up against the ropes and people are saying, stop the fight, stop the fight. I can't remember a time Canelo was like that. And I'm very, I'm very curious how Canelo will handle someone like like one punch in the early round, right. and he feels Triple G's power. I'm curious to see how that changes game plan because it's like in MMA, there's a saying where everyone's a black belt until they get punched once, and then they forget everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious to see if Canelo changes his game plan once he feels Triple G's power. Right, like what happens when he gets rocked once, and it's probably going to happen. I would be the, the, there's a few things that would shock me because I think this fight can go any number of directions, but Canelo not getting hit hard by Triple G once within the entire fight would shock me. I think it's going to happen. I would give me away. Canelo would be the best boxer in the world if that happened. Oh, absolutely, and and the truth is that the winner of this fight's got to be looking good for pound for pound rankings, but. We look at Triple G. I mean, you know what his game is. And the thing that I think most people on the outside don't understand, Jose, is that while he is a knockout artist, this is a guy that can flat out box. So I think picking his spots is going to be key because we know how gifted Canelo is and the speed advantage. But he can definitely mix it up with him. I think not playing his game, not fighting his fight will be key for him. Yeah, and it's not like like when like when we were talking about earlier when Deontay Wilder when he'll take rounds off or he'll take fights off to land that one punch. He is just winging haymakers in there, hoping one lands. What Triple G fights, it's like uh, it's like you said, he's just like a cerebral stone cold killer assassin where he sees an opening and he throws it. All of his punches, he punches with a purpose. He's not punching just to land punches. I mean, if you give him one second. That's it. You're, it's over. The fight's going to be over, and Canelo's going to be face down on the canvas. So, it is. Uh, it is two fighters with exceptionally high IQ fight IQs, where Triple G's not going to come in winging haymakers. Canelo's not going to come in winging haymakers. They're going to pick their shots. They're going to feel it out. Like I said, this is what Mayweather-Pacquiao should have been in 2008, where just two of the best fighters of their era, both with power, IQ 
technique, everything, and I this is the best fight I can remember in the last few years. Well, all right, Jose Youngs, it's that time. We we have to pick a winner. <laughs> I am I'm, I'm dreading this myself. Yeah, Thirty five year old Triple G versus Canolo, twenty seven years old, the fight of the year. Before you before you reveal who's gonna win, I want you to think about a couple other questions. Do you think this fight will live up to the hype or come close to it? And is this the last time these two men will be in the ring? I want to know those answers as well as your pick. This will 100% live up to the fight. Canelo, the only boring fight he, he's been in was his last one against Chavez Jr. And that was only boring because Canelo, it was basically like watching Canelo fight an amateur where Chavez Jr. had no business being in that squared circle with him. Canelo is always in great fights. Golovkin, when he doesn't knock you out, is in like his last fight. Yeah, it was a decision, but it was a very exciting fight. Um, and Triple G has said that he's wanted a fighter that that could take the fight to him. So, a there is a one hundred percent chance this fight lives up to expectations and the hype. Uh, if people listen to this and they don't, they're fifty-fifty on whether this is worth it after the spectacle of Mayweather McGregor. This is one hundred percent worth the fight. There is zero chance of this disappointing. B, I do, I do expect a rematch. Uh, these two fighters have so much respect for each other. I mean, when Golovkin entered the ring, they shook hands, they they exchanged words. It wasn't like Mayweather where he talked trash and threw money around. These guys are boxing fans first, and they understand the business. I expect at least two fights, possibly a trilogy if they split it. I norm, normally don't go four or five like back in the day, but hey, uh, we got the Marquez um, Pacquiao fight was like four different times when that shouldn't have happened more than twice. And for my decision, I said, me and you talked about this, and I know if I said anything else, you'd call me out on it. I said I thought Triple G would knock out Canelo in the later rounds, so I'm going to stick with that. But this is about as 51-49 in my mind as possible. And for those listening, like I'm a huge Canelo fan. He's probably my favorite boxer. So I'm looking at this unbiasedly, but I do think Triple G wins in a late round TKO. Yeah, I just want to point out the legacies at stake in this fight because if Canelo wins this fight I mean that's going to put him in the upper echelon of not just Mexican fighters but generationally great fighters Triple G wins this fight he knocks out Canelo we got to start thinking about him in the all-time discussion too the guy's never lost so right um, I would say his resume compares pretty favorably to Mr. Mayweather's Given, yeah. given who's on it, if he if he were to handle Canelo, so if Triple G, I personally can like looking at the records, Canelo's fought much better competition, like Amir Khan and Miguel Cotto and uh, all those fighters. Triple like for the for me, this is Triple G's first real big name fight, and a lot of people are saying that. If but if Golovkin, say Golovkin goes out there and just crumples Canelo in the early rounds and goes to thirty eight and zero. With 34 knockouts, we have to start talking about him and Andre Ward because that's the only fight I want to see after oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I wasn't ready for that. Um, but, yeah, that would be something. I'm going with a Triple G knockout as well. Yeah. I, I like it in about the eighth or ninth round. Yeah, um, man, I just, I'm ready for it. And the guy is, he's such a likable guy, too. I mean, he's, he's, he's yeah, both of them, too. I mean, you got to give respect to Canelo, but Triple G's going uh, to Dodger Stadium. He's on the Breakfast Club. Like, what? <laughs> he's just, and he Canelo, appeals to the masses, but Canelo's right there with him. And Canelo is learning English. Uh, he understands it pretty perfectly from just, like, interviews I have with him over the phone and such. 
He has his translator there, but he can understand things pretty perfectly, and then he'll answer through his translator. And if he can't answer in English, he always at least attempts to. And if he can't, he'll then he'll then ask for help. So Triple G is completely fluent in English. So uh, if anything, he'll come off um, a little more likable to the American audience. But Canelo is the biggest superstar in Mexico right now, and if, especially especially if he wins, he's going to be the biggest boxing super, like not just boxing, but he's going to be the biggest superstar in all of Mexico. Uh, especially because he's not even 30. He's a good-looking kid. He still has a, 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 a long, long, long career ahead of him. Uh, and once he learns English and the, and the American audience gravitates him more, maybe get a few more fights in, in, in the USA, uh, Canelo could be, the, Canelo could be the, the, per, the one fighter that takes Mayweather's place as the box office kingpin. Very possible. Well, Jose, this was fun. I'm excited for the fight, as I know you are. Uh, but I couldn't let you go though without bringing up the uh, the best uh, winning streak in in AL baseball history. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta. I mean, you're the only Indians fan I know. Uh, it's it's. I think this this year in baseball is awesome. What Stan is doing uh, over in Miami, what the Dodgers are doing for three quarters of the season before recently, uh, this tight race in the AL East and the Indians is the Indians historic streak. It's it's an awesome time to be a baseball fan and. As a Red Sox fan, a lifetime diehard Red Sox fan, I could not be happy for Terry Francona right now. I think he's the best manager in all of baseball, uh, obviously the best manager in, in Red Sox history, and I'm so jealous and happy that he has a shot to to continue this historic run in Cleveland. Yeah, 21 is just insane. I mean, it, it's at yeah. a certain point you're playing with house money, and, and I understand <laughs> that uh, that you know it, it's probably going to end tonight as they go to the ninth inning down two to one, but you know. It's just you like to enjoy the moment. So I tell everybody while, you know, getting texts and, and talking about this streak that obviously the playoffs are still a different beast and, and you, you feel good about your chances, but you never know. I mean, uh, but I just this team, this team really it. reminds me of the 98 Yankees where they don't have like a clear cut like this guy is going to win the AL MVP. It's just a perfectly built team. They obviously what they got Andrew Miller back today, right? So yeah, it's like, they're only they're only getting better. Francisco Lindor is one of my favorite players in all of baseball. So it's uh, this is a magical team for sure. Yeah, well, I, you know, only thing I'll say is I um, I try to leave homerisms out of it. But Cooper for Cy Young, come on. Come I mean, on. sale was good. Yeah, sale started out good, but uh, it ugh. was sale for a long time. But what Kluber's been doing? What is it? His ERA is like one point six or something crazy That's like disgusting. that. And his strikeout rate is absurd. You know, sale yeah. is high as well, but I mean, it's going to be down between him and Sale. But Sale's lost a lot of steam. But yeah, I got to tip my hat to Kluber. He deserves it. All right, Jose Young's money, Mitch Effect. Thanks for coming on. This was fun, and uh, sure. enjoy the weekend. A lot of good sports headlined by that fight. See you, man. Huge thanks to both our guests, Sean Sully Sullivan and Jose Youngs. It was a big, big show today, and I thank them for hopping on it, appearing, bringing the heat, doing a good job. And again, the Indians, I got to say, we were recording that. They were down going into the ninth inning, 2-1. to one, And I thought, okay, you know, the streak's going to end at some point. It has to end at some point. But they come back two outs in the ninth, Frankie Lindor. And the first walk-off, Lindor to tie, they win in extra innings. But the first walk-off 
miraculously in the entire streak. It's just remarkable. Trying to stay in the moment. I, I don't know if they'll win all 48 games to end the season, but hey, we'll see. I'm going to catch them when they play the Angels next week. So it's just an interesting time, a fun time for baseball fans, all Indians fans. I just hope everyone's enjoying it, and I hope everyone enjoyed this show. There's some big college football, big boxing this weekend. I hope you have a blast doing whatever you do. Hopefully it involves sports. That's probably why you're here. But I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks for everybody that makes this show what it is and all the people out there who listen to it. Listen, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And until next time, I'm Mitch Michaels signing off. Enjoy sports.